Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. This episode is going to be an interview with um, Baby Teeth author Zoya Stage. Um, we were very excited about that book, gave it uh, some rave reviews, and now uh, she agreed to come on to talk to us about it. So I, I've been excited about this. Um, this has been in the works for a couple of weeks, and I've been really, really looking forward to picking her brain about some of this baby teeth stuff. So we should probably just get to it then, huh? I like that idea. So without further ado, here is our interview with Zoya Stage. Zoya, thanks for joining us. I'm really, uh, really looking forward to talking to you about baby teeth. Thank you so much for having me. So whenever we review uh, a book and then have the author on, uh, at the beginning, we we spent so basically the idea is we spent like an hour t- telling people how we interpreted the book, but we we like to give the author kind of a like a fair uh, you know shake at at giving their perspective about what the book is about. So, do you have kind of a a, a synopsis or a, or a quick elevator pitch of of what Baby Teeth is in in your words? Yes, mine is my description is quite quite short, but I find that. It's more effective that way. So I usually just tell people that Baby Teeth is about a mother with a chronic illness who is homeschooling her child. And she has a very difficult seven-year-old daughter who does not speak. And at some point, the mother starts to become concerned that her daughter's behavior, as it's getting worse and worse, that her daughter perhaps intends to kill her. So I just leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I, I, see, and that's so for for listeners, we talked about synopsis writing a little bit before the podcast. Um, I, I think that's a better synopsis than what was on the, on the book jacket. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, when we came across Baby Teeth, it was listed in the horror category um, on Amazon. And although labels are a terrible, terrible thing, what what genre do you think your book fits into? Yeah, honestly, I've been really surprised to see it listed as horror and to see how many people have referred to it as horror. When I was marketing it, like when I was just trying to find an agent, I just referred to it as suspense. And I've heard a lot of people refer to it as a lot of different genres from domestic suspense, psychological suspense, a thriller, horror. So I find it a little bizarre, honestly, that that anybody would call it officially horror I I personally feel like that's a little bit misleading, and I almost don't even want to say why because I'm afraid it'll give away spoilers, but I feel like this isn't truly a horror novel. So um, this has – I don't know if this is going to really kind of – this is something that I was thinking about about horror that, um, at least in our experience recently, um, horror is kind of experiencing this kind of growth right now, and there's uh, a lot of really – talented writers in horror and horror readers like in my experience tend to be you know pretty fanatical about reading horror so i'm wondering if um maybe classifying as horror is just leaning into a genre that's kind of in a growth uh growth state right now as far as like popularity and enthusiasm and stuff like that like it might it would suck if it would boil down to people just wanted to be horror because it's it's good and they love horror, but like there could be something to that. Yeah. I mean, so far as I know, in terms of how it was marketed, I don't think they ever marketed it as horror. I feel like that's something that's kind of happened after the fact um, when people have read the book and like so many, 
reader descriptions described it as the creepiest book they ever read. And I feel like the horror category may have come after the fact based on how readers interpreted it. Right. Yeah. So like it made it I on guess, the list that way or whatever. Yeah. Crowdsourcing a category is yes, probably there. not a, not a bad way to go in some ways. Um, I find that for a while it to be genuinely scary and maybe that's, um, you know, because readers interpret it that way, uh, you know, maybe they just figure, hey, you know, this is going to be appeal more to people who like horror rather than somebody who might like, say, domestic suspense. I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, now that uh, Borders has been gone for years, they were the last bookstore, I think, that actually had a horror section, which I appreciated because sometimes if I was in that mood, I would just go browse the horror section. But now Amazon taking over whatever, some ridiculous amount of book sales. Um, I feel like category breakdowns have become a little more important again. Because you go into Barnes and Noble, they don't actually have a horror section; they mm-hmm. have a fiction section, and all the horror is mixed in with everything else. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, honestly. That circles back around to genre uh, labels suck. I guess is what it is. <laughs> yeah. um, so the for for the listeners who maybe haven't. Uh, heard our review or read the book yet um the book is broken down into um like per chapter perspectives between um the mother and the daughter um and i guess how challenging was it to write from the perspective of a a mischievous uh, like seven-year-old girl yeah you know people ask me that a lot and the truth is her chapters were easier and not only were hannah's chapters easier that was probably the most fun I've ever had as a writer is writing her chapters. I mean, it was really, really genuinely enjoyable. I liked the fact that she didn't know everything about the world and she misinterprets things about the world. And it let me be really creative in how I would think of, you know, how would she interpret this situation? And if she hasn't experienced such a, such and such a thing in the world, what would she know instead? So I actually really loved the challenge of writing her. She was a lot of fun. Following up to that, um, without spoiling anything, um, I definitely had the most like emotional moments reading some of the stuff uh, that was written from her perspective, especially toward the end of the book. Um, I, putting myself in your shoes, I feel like I might have been kind of an emotional wreck with some of those. So did you, did you kind of follow the, the moods of, of writing her or was it really just kind of a fun exercise? No, I definitely followed her moods. I do that with all of my characters and all of my books that I really feel very intensely, whatever is happening in that scene or in that chapter. So I think I know the exact moment that you're talking about. And it's oh, like, man. not only did I cry through writing that, but Every time I would go back through it to work on revisions, I mean, just it would just I would be transported back to that moment and I would feel what she was feeling so intensely. So, yes, I did cry along with Hannah. I did. Yeah, that. And again, without referencing exactly what it was, that wrecked me. And like so much that like even talking about even alluding to what it is now, I'm like, I'm I'm, I'm welling up a little bit. So um, that emotion very, very much came through, at least for when I was reading it. Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of people. And, you know, it's funny because people ask me questions about Hannah or make comments about her and she's so evil and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, from my perspective, 
she's not evil. From my perspective, she's really, really misunderstood. And the degree to which she's understood is heartbreaking to me. It's like, I really feel like she's the child of my heart. And it's like, I wish I could comfort her. I wish she I could help her feel more understood. But it's sort of her her fate in life, unfortunately, is to keep trying and trying in her askew ways to make herself understood and to communicate. And it just everything she tries just makes her situation worse. And I just feel so badly for her. It just occurred to me. Um, so one of the things with our podcast that we do is, uh, aside from reviewing a book, sometimes we, we do like a spoiler discussion on our Patreon. Uh-huh. And most likely you didn't hear that because you're not um, subscribing to us on Patreon. Uh-huh. But what you just said, I realized Livius and I had such a great conversation about exactly that. So now I think I'm going to make a promise to like email you the file so you can okay. listen to like our <laughs> thoughts about that because like I, I'm on I'm on your side with that. So. <laughs> okay, cool. So um, conversely, I guess um, I imagine that that Hannah. How do I say this? Hannah, because of her special circumstance, is kind of wide open on how you can write her. Was there a was there a pressure to get Suzette as the mom right? So when I say that, Hannah is hopefully, knock on wood, a very fictional character because of the scope of the book. Um, but Suzette is is every mother, right, or every mother that's faced with a with a significant challenge. Was there was there a pressure to to really get that kind of motherly feel right? Yeah, I did feel a lot of pressure to get Suzette just right because her nuances are a little bit tricky. Because, of course, on the one hand, she obviously is trying very, very hard to do everything right by her daughter. And she's internalized a lot of ideas about what it means to be a good mother. And she's internalized her own situation with her mother and how her mother was a bad mother. And she's put this pressure on herself, how she wants to be so different than that. You know, and then the the flip side of that, which there are little hints of, is, you know, Suzette does have moments where she misses her old life, where she misses her life before Hannah was there. And it's a very, very taboo thing for parents to ever say. But I think realistically, a lot of parents have those flashes in their life where, and of course they don't hold on to them, they don't truly regret having their children, but that parents can't ever really say they can never verbalize it because of how horrible it sounds. So it's like I wanted with Suzette to be able to be this complex character who both has these visions of what kind of mother she wants to be, but yet still has regrets without her seeming like a monster. I still wanted her to seem like a sympathetic person. For sure. And, um, and you did that very well. That's not, I don't even know why I'm just, just wanted to say, I didn't, I wasn't questioning you. You know what I mean? Like, I think you did a good job, but it occurred to me, like I said, that one was really, you can kind of do whatever you want with Hannah, but that, yeah, Suzette would be a little bit of a different, um, a different story, so to speak. So Suzette has Crohn's disease and that played a, a significant part in the life, uh, in her life, in the story. Um, do you want to tell us about your decision to incorporate that into your story? Sure. Yeah. 
You know, when I was preparing to write this book, and I was, you know, I always start with a notebook and ideas, and I start, you know, writing things about the characters and things I know about the story. And I'm not exactly sure why it hit me, but it hit me that, like, you know, if Suzette had some something that made her vulnerable and something that Hannah recognized and that Hannah might think is a weakness, it would really make for an interesting dynamic between the two of them. And then instantaneously, because I, in fact, do have Crohn's disease, I was like, oh, well, obviously that would have to be Crohn's disease. And prior to that moment, I, I would never have imagined that I would write about Crohn's disease or write it especially so how personally I wrote it for Suzette. But I do feel in the end that it was very effective because it gave a lot of complexity for her, for Suzette in terms of, you know, why she is insecure about certain things. And of course it ties in with her own background and growing up. And it is something that, you know, Hannah can try to find ways of like, how can she use her mother's illness against her? So it did work, but yeah, those chapters honestly were really hard for me to write too. So um, reading uh, from your um, blog, you did an article with Amazon and uh, you kind of touched on a little bit about the reaction to you using uh, uh, Crohn's as part of the story. Um, were you expecting like I, to, to make a connection with other people who suffer from Crohn's or was that kind of a surprise for you? That was a big surprise to me. I have to say that's been one of the most unexpected and rewarding things to happen from publishing the book because I had never thought that I would have, and it's not just been people with Crohn's disease, but people with other autoimmune diseases who have contacted me to say that they feel seen and they've expressed it in so many ways. Like there was one woman who said, you know, as soon as I read your book, I knew I had to get my husband to read it so that he could finally understand what I'm experiencing. And it made me feel really good because honestly, it made me then feel connected too, because that is something I've struggled with in my life where I feel like, you know, when you have an invisible illness, most of the times people have absolutely no idea what you're going through. And you really feel misunderstood, like nobody understands. So it's interesting that it's like now I've connected with some readers and not only do they feel seen now, but it's like I kind of feel seen too. So I really did not expect that to happen, but it was a very, very rewarding thing to happen. So I have to imagine that probably it's the same way for the, the people that had that reaction was maybe they didn't realize how good it would feel to, to see it portrayed until they did. And yeah. so, yeah. Because you know what? Crohn's disease is not a glamorous disease. It really, truly is not a glamorous disease. I don't think anybody has ever written, um, to my knowledge, a book with a protagonist where they really go into the nitty gritty of it. So I, I remember when I had listened to your blog post um, where you had reviewed Baby Teeth, and I was like, oh my goodness, where are you guys going with this? Because you had <laughs> started by saying something like, you know, Crohn's disease, uh, it's like really disgusting. And I was like, oh no. And then and then you said something like, but now I know so much more about what it's like to live with this disease. And I was yeah. like, okay, yes, that, that was the idea. Uh, but yeah, it makes the person very vulnerable to put that out there in the world. But um, But there's a lot of people who live with invisible illnesses. And you know, we don't want to have to feel like we're ashamed or hidden or different. You know, we would like people to understand sometimes that we don't always feel well, 
but you know don't want to be perceived as being oddballs or weirdos aside from that you know well for for me and and i believe i speak for rob too between Suzette questioning her her ability to parent and and her responsibility in 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 Hannah's condition, we'll say for lack of a better term, and then with with her struggling with this disease just made her feel so much more real than so many characters in in, in books. And I'm not gonna there's a recent reference in my mind. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say what, but you know what I mean. Where I just felt like this character, although entertaining, was so flat and one dimensional. Mm-hmm. So now you have a mother who's questioning her ability to parent and, and like I said, her her being the cause of, of her daughter's condition. And then she's dealing with with this illness of her own. I mean, that made it feel like I'm talking to, to someone, um, you know, intimately that I know, you know, and that, that this is what this person's telling me. Like, I, I think I might be a shitty parent. And then on top of that, I have, you know what I mean? So it made her feel so much more three dimensional than than a lot of characters in mm-hmm. a lot of fiction. Well, I think ultimately for all of us, it's what really connects human beings is that we all have certain vulnerabilities and certain things that are very hard for us. And they aren't the same for all people. But when you're able to actually discuss them with someone, it's really liberating because then people feel like they're really genuinely connected. So for someone else, they might read about Suzette's Crohn's disease and, you know, maybe they have some completely different issue in their life. But then they realize at least, hey, you know what? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. We all have some kind of issues or things that we're dealing with, and it's okay. So I don't know. I feel like it just adds, helps people feel like they're connected and that human beings really have a lot more in common than we have, you know, not in common. That's a... That's that's great. I wasn't expecting like such an uplifting message to be part of this uh, interview, but not that I didn't think it was going to happen. But I'm glad that I'm glad that that discussion happened. It's 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 awesome. Um, so I'm going to ham hand, ham handedly uh, transition to a different question. Um, so the Crohn's is something that comes from personal uh, experience for you. Um, what about Sweden? Because there's a lot of uh, like Swedish language going on and, and references to Sweden. So is that is that also kind of coming from personal experience? Not really. It's so funny. I read a review, and I forget where it was. As, again, it was probably someone who tagged me on Twitter who referred to me as a Swedish writer, and I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> like, not only have I never been to Sweden, I've never even met a Swedish person. So I was like, wow, that's a really big compliment that they just assume I'm Swedish. But, um, no, that was kind of a happy accident. I'm one of those writers that, to the degree that I can use what I know and things that I'm familiar with, it's like I like to use those as details because I feel like then they become imbued in the story in a very organic way rather than making a decision like, oh, I would like this character to be an expert in this and then I have to go do the research and then maybe it feels like that's coming from an external place. So. The Swedish stuff came from an interest that I had in studying Scandinavian languages. And for a while, I had studied Swedish very, very seriously. And I watched Swedish television online all the time and read Swedish blogs. And so it's like I did really immerse myself um, in wanting to know about Sweden and the culture and the language. But it wasn't something I did for the book. It was just something that I already had as an interest. And 
then found it worked well for the book. You know, the decision to make Alex Swedish then had some unexpected um, things that happen in, in regards to the plot, like some of the holidays, which I won't give away since they're kind of important and I don't want to give spoilers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I didn't have that idea before I started writing the book. It was just like, okay, well, Swedish, you know, Alex is Swedish and what other Swedish things are, am I going to maybe drop in? And then started looking at some holidays and was like, great, Wall Purgis, that would be perfect. So <laughs> it's one of those happy things that just, you know, came from my own interests and then worked itself well into, you know, just the whole character development of the story. I, I'm, I personally really appreciate that answer because, um, my last name's Olson, and um, so my father's side of, of, of my life, it's like half Swedish, half Norwegian, and I'm so ignorant of the culture of that side of my family that I don't even know if the O-N is the Swedish side or the Norwegian side. So I, I felt a lot of pressure, like, oh, man, she's going to know all this Swedish stuff. <laughs> my name's Olson. I don't know a damn thing about my culture. So, yeah. That's <laughs> okay. While we're on the Swedes, um, Alex, uh, the the husband and father and baby teeth, as, as you mentioned, is, is the Swedish portion of this equation. He's really he's really kind of a tertiary character, although he's super important to the plot. Um, was there ever a time when you considered bringing him in as a point of view, uh, maybe alternating with uh, with Hannah and Suzette? No, I really didn't. I really wanted to keep it as Suzette and Hannah's story. And I mean, I realize it makes it a little bit odd for his character, but, you know, his character is introduced to readers entirely through the perspectives of Suzette and Hannah. And I realize that doesn't give him an entirely full picture, but he also isn't really the one driving the momentum of the story. So... So, yeah, I think it worked that way. And no, I, I never really thought to make him a POV character. And it's interesting because, like, a lot of people read the book and they have a reaction to him. Like, like it's almost like they don't even really like him. So I don't think that situation would have improved if I had written him as a POV character. People might have had a little more sympathy for him if they'd seen his thoughts. But, um, but yeah, ultimately, the book, it's not really about him, though. As you said, he's important in terms of this kind of battle that's going on between Suzette and Hannah and their their interpretation that they alone need more of his love than the other one needs. But but yeah, no, he's it's hard to explain exactly how hmm. his character fits into that dynamic, but but yeah, I think he's present enough just by seeing it through their eyes. One thing that occurs to me is that like he appears kind of thematic he appears in the book kind of almost thematically how he appears in the lives of his family because he's away so much with work and stuff so um probably that just kind of equates to you know because we're seeing so much of their lives that like he pops up you know right. when he's when he's around which is not as often as, as the exactly. other two characters so like it makes sense the amount of the amount of time he's in the book but like like you guys both said, he's definitely a, a big concept in the book. But I, I think it's good that he appears like to the degree that he does. Yeah, because I mean, really, I mean, as you said, it is part of the issue is that he's not there and he's not present and he's not the one who's raising Hannah. So, 
you know, if he were really there more often, they'd probably have a completely different family dynamic and then maybe it'd be a completely different story. So, um, you know, I think his absence then does create this neediness in both Suzette and Hannah. And the more absent he is, probably it heightens what their neediness, how their neediness manifests. For sure. For sure. And I almost think like when I was reading it, I was like, what does he know? I know more about what's going on than he does. <laughs> um, that's did. <laughs> what's that? I said, that's true. Absolutely. The readers <laughs> definitely know more than Alex. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things that we tried to, to emphasize for the people listening to the review was that um, the book it was released under a different title for the UK, uh, Bad Apple, as opposed to Baby Teeth. Um, I don't know if you've answered this in other interviews or, or, or anything, but was there a, like a, a specific reason for that? Because I, and I guess the reason we're asking is because Baby Teeth is a badass title for a book. <laughs> yeah, I always feel a little bit strange about answering that because I don't want to like shit on the UK book at all because obviously I'm thrilled with the UK deal. Um, the UK deal was actually our first international sale and they told us from the second they were interested in the book that they wanted to change the title. So it was never a matter of, do you mind if we change the title? It was always going to be that they wow. were going to change the title. And, you know, with um, St. Martin's, who published Baby Teeth, Baby Teeth was the title I had submitted the book under, but I did provide a list of alternate titles, and mm -hmm. we did consider other things and then went back to Baby Teeth. With Bad Apple, it wasn't like that. The UK marketing team decided, you know, that they needed to call the book Bad Apple, and that that was how it is. And, you know, it's I had kind of mixed feelings about it because I felt like, you know, from the issue of the the title aside, which I also like Baby Teeth, I thought, well, they're really not going to be able to tap into necessarily all of the buzz that Baby Teeth gets because the book mm -hmm. has a title. But, you know... The book has done very well in the UK. A couple weeks ago, Bad Apple was number 13 on the UK hardcover list. Um, so clearly the UK marketing people know what they're doing. And I have the hardcover um, Bad Apple. I've got a whole box of them. I have to say, it's a beautiful book, <laughs> a really beautiful book. So you know what? They were making decisions based on what they thought was best for, you know, for, for their country. So i got to give it to them. They know what they were doing. I was kind of hoping for an answer where baby teeth means something completely different in the UK than it does here. You know, you get those things <laughs> that just don't mean the same thing. Yeah, well, there like, was that a little bit. I mean, that's what they tried to tell me, that um, the more common phrase there was milk teeth, which I have heard milk mm. teeth. Oh, and yeah. early on, like when people would ask me that question on Twitter quite a bit, and initially I would give that answer of like, oh, but you guys call it milk teeth over there. And I had all these UK people saying, we know what baby teeth are. Come on. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I better stop giving that as an answer. Man, sense. though. <laughs> yeah, now that you say that, milk teeth, maybe bad, bad apples better than yeah. milk teeth. <laughs> yeah. So maybe good. You dodged ways. a bullet with milk teeth. <laughs> yeah milk teeth was kind of interesting but no i don't think that was ever even considered as a title so i don't know somebody said i think somebody i knew who said bad apple is like the bad seed grown up a little and i'm like oh that's interesting <laughs> i'm like maybe it's like that it's uh the bad seed has grown now into the bad apple so i don't know if they were trying to 
tie it in with that more directly. I don't know. Hmm. Is baby teeth appearing in other countries? You mentioned that the UK was the first, which leads me to believe there's more than one. Yes, it has. I have to remember my list. Okay, it's been sold to Hungary, the Czech Republic, Poland, Germany, Russia. I'm forgetting something. Um, Korea, and obviously oh. the UK. It's it's available in Australia, New Zealand as well. I think that's my whole list at the moment. Holy shit. Congratulations, because oh, that's phenomenal. Thank you. <laughs> so, sorry. That's wow. That's tremendous. Good for you. Thank you. Um, transitioning away from baby teeth. Um, so we noticed in, I don't remember where we got your original bio from, that you were in film and theater. Um, any particular reason for making a move away from that? Or is that something you're still interested in or active in? Um, I had pursued film and theater actually for a very long time. That was really what my background. Um, I had started doing theater as a teenager, and by the time I was 19, I had a goal of being an independent filmmaker. I wanted to be a writer-director, um, and that was something I pursued for a long, long time. But there were a couple of problems, and one of them was finances, and the other was my health. I mean, I've lived a very reclusive lifestyle for a long time because of my health. And um, between 2009 and 2012, I experienced a lot of really life-changing health problems. And I started to realize, I'm like, I don't think I can even continue to make the little no-budget films that I was making at that time. And it took me a while mentally to like come to terms with the fact that I think I needed to find another medium and I needed to find another way to express myself creatively um, but eventually I decided that writing novels would replace making films. And it's interesting how well making films prepared me for writing novels in certain ways, especially since I was a do-it-yourself filmmaker. So I wrote, I directed, I produced, I shot, I edited, I acted. And then when I came to writing novels and I realized, you know, you kind of have to wear all of those hats when you're writing. Like you have to be every single character. You have to be the cinematographer and the production designer. You have to, you know, let the readers know what they're seeing. Um, you're also still the director, you know, by picking and choosing what do the readers see, what do they experience. So even though initially I was really intimidated by writing novels, I feel like that having worked on big projects, even though my films were like no budget, nothing, they were still big projects to do basically by myself that it actually lent itself really well to helping me uh, be able to write all of the different aspects that you need to have in a novel. So, so yeah, I'm not gonna be pursuing film anymore. I'm, I'm a dedicated novelist at this point. It's, uh, it's interesting, as you were, as you were saying all that, um, I was kind of mentally flipping back through um, the discussions that we've had with other authors over the years and, um, that you know sometimes we've talked to people who have like written a screenplay that they later adapted into a book um some people as just part of their process kind of take all the dialogue write it as a screenplay so that they can try and make it sound more genuine and things like that so um as you were saying this and how how that you know those skills were helpful in transitioning toward writing novels i was like oh yeah yeah people do that like we've we've heard people's success stories with 
kind of using um, the kind of the action and dialogue focused kind of screenplay format to help make their um, their books better, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, I mean, I and for me, I guess one of the big things that I brought from film, especially, um, was this idea of, of having something that's very visual. And I know I think a lot of people have had the reaction to reading Baby Teeth that it is very visual. And I mean, I think in images, that still is how I think. I mean, I wrote like 50 screenplays in my day. And that process of writing a movie and seeing it in my head is so ingrained that that's still how I write a book, too. It's I see the scenes and then I write those scenes as they're like playing out almost like on a screen in my head. All right. Here's the tough question then. Okay. So if someone came to you and said, would you screenplay baby teeth for us? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I've had this conversation because obviously I still have a lot of film friends. And I think some of them thought that this was just my my sneaky approach to try to get back into film. And it's like, that's really, <laughs> really not true. And, you know, I do have a film agent shopping the rights around to baby teeth. And my agent and my film agent have asked you know, if people ask, are you interested in writing the screenplay? And what I tell them is that, you know what, I, I trust someone else to do the adaptation. And my first choice would be probably to not be involved, but to let somebody else do what they needed to do with it. But with that said, if somebody said, you know, if they thought, you know, that I had a certain expertise with the story and they want, wanted me to be involved, I mean, I wouldn't say no. But it honestly isn't my first choice um, you know, doing an adaptation is, I think, very, very different than doing either an original screenplay or an original novel. So I'm not absolutely positive how my skill set would be in adapting my own novel for a screenplay. I could see hmm. that the tendency might want to be to preserve everything, but we know that a good film adaptation does not necessarily preserve everything that's in a novel. You need the essence of something. And I don't know if I would be the best person to capture the essence. So That's no. a good point. You could end up with a six-hour movie. Right, exactly. Well, yeah. I would kind of like it to be, honestly, a limited TV series. That's my dream. Mm -hmm. I could see how it would lend to, lend, lend to that. Yeah. yeah. Then you could have all of the, you know, all the backstory stuff with Suzette growing up and all of the, you know, Hannah's different ages like when she was in nursery school and she was with in kindergarten then you could really give some of that time and get to see all of it which i think would i think would lend itself well to a limited series that's my dream we'll keep we'll, we'll be looking on uh on the on the twitters for that that would be awesome yeah it would It'd be very cool so this is kind of one of those questions that we in general we ask all the authors that but um uh is there is there someone that you're reading right now that you're really inspired by or something that you've um, read recently that you'd like to to have people be more aware of? Hmm. I mean, obviously, there are always authors and books that I love and that get me really excited for different reasons. I know people often ask about, you know, being influenced by writers. Maybe this sounds weird, but I really try hard not to be influenced by other writers because I don't want to be I don't want to emulate what other people do I want to respect what other people do but like I'm really into still finding out 
you know, what is what is my path as a storyteller and where am I going to go with that? And so in a certain way, I almost don't want to be too influenced. I would say probably the two writers, because these were writers from many, many years ago that influenced me the most and for very different reasons were Willa Cather and Ursula Le Guin. And if you look at my dark, suspenseful books, it's not obvious that those two writers would be like my background influences. But I really like how poetic Willa Cather was in her writing. And I really liked how Ursula Le Guin used genre to explore a lot of things about society. And she makes genre bigger than just being genre, that it can be limitless in how it explores different aspects of humanity. So, so yeah, those two writers were the most influential in a slightly obscure kind of way. We, like I said, this is one of the questions that we ask, you know, authors very commonly when we're interviewing them and you would like the, the answers are all over the map. <laughs> like everybody has a very, it, it's one of those, like, I feel like it's one of the most personal responses you get um because either someone has a philosophy of like you were saying like how uh, um you like not necessarily want to be influenced and other people just have an entirely different reaction so this is the one that has like the probably the most broad uh spectrum of reaction so even though it's kind of an awkward question to ask i always like to see like where's this person coming from with this uh-huh. i think you mentioned just now your dark books plural yeah. Um, what's, what's next? What are we going to see next from you? What's on the horizon? What's next? Okay. You know, I give very short synopses Mm -hmm. and with this one, I'm slightly hesitant how much to tell about it. Like I'm even hesitant to say the title because, you know, ultimately it is the marketing department that decides what a book is called. And my second book has not been through the marketing department yet, so I don't know if the title's going to stay. But for right now, it's called Wonderland. And it's a little bit of a departure from Baby Teeth in certain ways. It still involves a family with children. But the troubles that they're having are not coming from within. It's not coming from a place of dysfunction. It's coming from something very strange. So the basic idea of the story is a hardcore New York artsy family moves to the middle of nowhere in the Adirondacks on the cusp of winter. And what they think initially are just bad weather problems and adjustment issues and do they have cabin fever and are they losing their minds because they're in such a foreign environment, they start to realize that something much more sinister is going on. And that's all I'll say. That sounds well, awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're going to be reading that when it, <laughs> when it hits shelves. I'm hoping it'll hit shelves. Um, I'm hoping like for Christmas 2019, but it doesn't have a definite publication date yet. So it's either going to be late winter 2019 or early winter 2020. Um, Yeah, that's the, the, and when you get, like you can have a book finished, but then there's this whole rigmarole it has to go through when it gets to the publisher. And that's why like, one of the things over the years that has been a little frustrating for us is someone says, oh, I'm writing this book, and they tell us, and we're like, oh, I want to read that right now, and then 
cut to two years later when it's released and we're like finally <laughs> getting our hands I on know. it. So. <laughs> I know. I'm still getting used to that myself because, you know, the second book, Wonderland, and I've been working on it for a while and, you know, the revision process is almost finished. So it's like, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, let's publish it in like six months. But yeah, yeah. that's just not how it works. <laughs> so. yeah. Patience. Um, well, uh, we want to thank you for coming on and, and absolutely thank you for sharing some of the more personal stuff that, that came up in conversation. Um, thanks for baby teeth. And again, yeah, just thanks for joining us. It was, it was a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is the first podcast I've done and okay. I picked you guys because you have <laughs> such interesting conversations and I thought it would be a lot of fun and it was. So thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, there's uh, there's always this like anxiety I get before we talk to someone for the first time that, you know, what if what if we suck? What if they don't like talking to us? Whatever. Um, so I, I'm never like excited about talking to someone. Like Livia said, he was super excited to talk to her. I'm always like, I just hope this isn't garbage. And that turned out to be like the exact opposite of garbage. I love it when we have um, an interview that's so engaging and and again like. Um, she had personal stuff to share. So it was great to hear um, that. It was nice that she was um, you know, willing to kind of dig into some of her personal life as well. Yeah. If you haven't read Baby Teeth, let me again strongly encourage you. I will remind you that I made it very public. It was the best book I've read this year. Um, I stand by that still a month later or whatever <laughs> it's been. Um, I would get on this train early. We're going to be seeing a lot of great stuff from her. Absolutely. So um, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. What do we got coming up in the future, Livius? We sold our souls. That's coming up. It is a rock and roll horror story. I'm halfway through it. So I'm <laughs> like, I already, I already have thoughts, but I'm not going to share them right now. So uh, Rob hasn't gotten a chance to crack this open yet as we have a paper copy that we're sharing. Um, but I'm hoping to get that into his hands very soon. That's going to be the next uh, review that you hear just about a week from now. All right. So until then, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snudden. Keep reading. <laughs>